0: Hey guys, thanks so much for joining us right here for the Active Church Podcast. We believe that you can tell a better story and we are so glad you are engaging with our content today. You're about to hear from one of our incredible teaching pastors and we hope that you'll be impacted by this message. Thanks again for being with us. So about a year ago, I received a phone call from my son. And that may not seem concerning to you, but it was very unsettling to me because Gavin never calls. Gavin is a texter and usually it's one or two words at the most, but he called me and I had just dropped him off at a friend's house about 20 minutes ago. And so I was concerned. So I answered the phone with a hesitant, hello. And on the other end, I could hear the pain and anguish in his voice. And he said these words, Dad, I think I dislocated my elbow. And so because I'm a caring and compassionate and good father, I said, are you sure? And he responded with, yeah, I think so. And then I said, well, who says, and he said, all of my friends think it's dislocated. And so I responded with, because I'm caring and compassionate, I responded with, well, there are, are there any doctors over the age of 15 that are there that can actually tell me if this is dislocated? And he said, well, all the adults here think that I've really done some damage to it as well. And so eventually I relented and I said, I'll come pick you up. And so I drove over there and when I saw him, he was in pain, holding his elbow. His friends were carrying his bags to the car and he got into the car and I began to ask him what happened. And over the course of the conversation that we had on the way to urgent care and over the next few days, I discovered that my fool of a son decided to stand on a tire. And I'm not talking about a tire that's in the ground with sand around it, like maybe you would see on a playground. I'm talking about an upright tire. And then he had the nerve to tell me that it was safe because it was between two concrete barriers with just a little wiggle room. He's 15 at the time. I get it. We've all done stupid things. But I was, I was mad. And I could tell that he, he was sad. And I wanted to tell him that this was a dumb thing to do, but I could see and feel his emotion and the pain. And then we went to the urgent care and got the x-rays. And then we received the information that we were both hoping we wouldn't receive that Gavin had broken his elbow. Here's the problem. He was about one week away from volleyball season and Gavin has worked for this volleyball season he had not played sports up until this point and my brother-in-law who's a volleyball coach inspired him to try out for the team and so for five to six months before volleyball season Gavin was working out and exercising and working out his legs and practicing his form and he put in the effort he was committed to this and then this happened he was devastated In fact, we actually had a conversation about being responsible and being honorable before this happened. We talked about being responsible as a teammate, making sure that he didn't hurt himself because the team was relying upon him, and being honorable to his commitment to the team by being safe and not doing anything ridiculous outside of playing volleyball so that he could actually play. But this moment, it ruined everything. So in the car on the way home, I could tell that Gavin was emotional and I was emotional, but I was riding the tension between being mad and sad. I was riding the tension between, am I going to let him have it? Because as a parent, right, we have all of those first instincts to say to our kid, what are you doing? Or was I going to lend him a hand? Was I going to help him learn? Have you ever been there? You're riding the tension of, I'm going to let you have it or I'm going to help you learn. I, I'm i going to look at you and maybe let you know how mad I am or I'm going to stand next to you and lean in and walk with you as you are sad. Have you ever been there and have you ever ridden that tension, maybe as a parent or as a friend or maybe as an employer, as a leader? What do you do in those moments? How do you handle those moments when Someone is in desperate need of help. What do you do? What do you do when they need your help? And what decision do you make to give them help? And what if, what if they caused the pain or the hurt and then they asked you for help? Or what if they caused the pain or hurt and you had already warned them that whatever they were about to do was going to cause them pain or hurt and they did it anyway and then they came to you for help? What, what do you do? Do you feel me on that? Do you, you feel a tension in that? That's what I was feeling in the car ride home. And that actually is the tension that Jesus introduces us to in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been walking through this incredible teaching of Jesus. It really shows the genius of Jesus, how he invites us in instead of dividing us with his words. And at the beginning of this Sermon on the Mount, where he's teaching about the kingdom of God and how to follow Jesus, he shares the values We call them Beatitudes. And the value that he shares with us today, it brings up a tension in my heart and perhaps even in your heart as well. And and the tension is found and summarized in this question. How will we stand when life starts to fall apart for someone we know and love? Jesus brings the answer. Matthew wrote it down. It's in Matthew chapter 5 verse 7. Jesus said these words, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. Like according to Jesus, in those moments when we're riding the tension between I'm going to let them have it or I'm going to help them learn. Jesus says the best way to stand, no matter the circumstances, even if they caused the problem, the best way to stand is to stand on the side of mercy. And I want to talk about that today. And I want to get started by asking this question of you, something for you to ponder and to consider. When did God become real to you? And I'm not talking about when you prayed a prayer to accept Jesus as as your Lord and Savior, to become a Christian, or when you showed up to church, but I'm talking about those moments when God moved from an idea to a reality, when God moved from a deity to your heavenly Father, Suddenly, he's not this religious thought or this spiritual being, but he's a personal God. When did God become real to you? I would guess it was probably in a moment of desperation in your life, or maybe a moment of great need or when you needed help. And you know what all of those moments have in common? We all needed mercy. And that's when God becomes real to us. When we receive what we don't deserve. When we get, instead of the consequences, we get mercy. Mercy is choosing care over condemnation. And the posture of mercy invites you and me into a better story. And it believes, it's convicted and convinced that things will get better because God is a God who is the author and the perfecter of every faith and every better Story, And we know this, and we're reminded of this constantly in the scriptures. Like when Paul writes to men and women like you in a church in Rome, and he writes these words, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like while we were still in the moment where we caused pain and sorrow, and even though we were warned and we did it anyway, Jesus decided to step into that mess To fill in the gap. And he decided to die for us. When Jesus could have let us have it, he gave us life instead. When Jesus could have said, I told you so, he decided to choose reconciliation over being right. And that we see all the way through the scriptures. This is why Jesus is so irresistible. Because he chose mercy. Over judgment. And again, we see this over and over in the scriptures. There's another moment where Jesus is having a conversation with a religious leader. His name is Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was in charge of religious practice at the temple. But he was drawn in by Jesus. He was drawn in by what Jesus said and what Jesus did. And so late at night, he sits with Jesus. And he has a conversation about who he is and what he's about. Remember, Jesus came to communicate and demonstrate what God is like. And he does very clearly in this conversation with Nicodemus, and it's one of the most famous scriptures of all time, John 3, 16 and 17. Jesus said these words to Nicodemus. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, and whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And then he says that God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Jesus didn't come to crush us. He came to care for us. Jesus didn't come to judge us. He came to justify us, to put us in right standing with our Heavenly Father. Instead of moving away from you, God decided to draw close to you because He's a merciful God. Again, Paul in Romans to these Roman Christians, he reminds us of what that looks like. He says that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's God's mercy that draws us in. It's not God's power or God flexing on us or condemning us or threatening us or the guilt we might feel. It is God's mercy. This is why you never see somebody coming to know Jesus on the side of the road Because somebody held a sign-up. It's why you never see somebody convinced that Jesus is Lord because you shared that article on social media. It's God's mercy, kindness, that leads us to life change because He changes our life. Mercy, it lends a hand. It doesn't smack the hand. You ever had your hand smacked? You reached for something You got smacked. Maybe you don't remember that because you were a baby and that maybe was what mom or dad or grandpa and grandma did. Not too hard, but just enough to go, oh, I I shouldn't do that. I think often we treat God that way, right? Like we're looking to see what we can get away with and God's going to smack the hand. But according to Paul, that's not God at all. God always stands on the side of mercy. And this is the thing that I don't want you to miss. When he says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy... What God is communicating through Jesus here is that He is a merciful God and yet His mercy, it changes us and, don't miss this, it changes how we interact with those around us. That when we've received mercy, we will give it away. That is the natural response to God's mercy. Is that we will give it away. We will stand on the side of mercy too. Jesus actually modeled this. In a a pretty remarkable story in the Scriptures, Luke, who investigated the work of Jesus, because he was a follower of Jesus. He wasn't one of the original disciples. But Luke was somebody who investigated the story. In fact, he was one of many. He says that at the beginning of his letter. He says, Many have undertaken to discover this story of Jesus. There were many people that wanted to tell the story of Jesus. And Luke, because he was smart and intelligent, he was a doctor he wanted to get this into the hands of people and help them to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus does and how he changes the lives of everybody that trusts in him. He tells this story about Jesus being invited over to a meal and it's a, it's a perfect example of mercy. It's found in Luke chapter 7, verse 36. And I would invite you to follow along if you have a Bible or the Bible app with you. The verses will be on the screen as well. I just want to read the story to you. I'll talk a little bit about some of the context so that you can understand what's really happening here because it's emotional and powerful, but it's a story that really doesn't need too much except for us just to read it. So I'm gonna start in verse 36 of Luke chapter seven. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. Now, reclining at the table in our world is like you're leaning back and then mom corrects you and says to sit up straight, right? But in this world, reclining at the table was a lot different. The tables were low to the ground And you would lay on one another. You would lay against one another. And Jesus reclining at the table, he would lay on his stomach and he would have his elbows down and his food would be in front of him with his feet behind him. So that's important to know as we continue to read. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life, that's a really kind way to say that everybody knew what she was about. Learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, and so she came in with an alabaster jar of perfume. This was so expensive. Not just the perfume, but the jar itself. She was wealthy, and she was wealthy, and this is Luke's way of telling us this. She was wealthy because of her career, which Luke says is sinful. So you fill in the gaps there, all right? As she stood behind him at his feet, because he's laying there, remember, remember, elbows down on his belly, feet behind him. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Now, I've had moments where I've cried. I'm sure you have as well. Maybe you've cried a lot. Happy tears or sad tears. She's crying so much that her tears are actually Soaking the feet of Jesus. So you know that something emotionally is stirring in her. Something is happening inside of her and it's coming out in this salty discharge from her eyes. And then she wiped the feet of Jesus with her hair. You have a towel. She's literally drying them, wiping them with her hair. And then Luke says, and then she kissed his feet. And then she poured perfume on his feet. I don't know if this has happened to you at dinner, for you, but this caught the attention of everybody as it would, right? When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus to the home, when he saw this, he just, he just thought to himself, just thought to himself, didn't even say this out loud, thought to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. She is a sinner. Now, I want to pause for a bit of context here. I want to give you two thoughts. First of all, women in the first century were not honorable. They were not honored, they were seen as products. And this woman was the epitome of being a product. She was selling her body to pay her bills. And can you imagine what she must have felt? Giving of her body to anybody that moved so that she could put food on the table for her family. She may have been ashamed of herself because she had to sell herself this way. But can you imagine the embarrassment that she must have felt because she wasn't able to feed her family? And so here's a moment where she comes into this room and everybody knows her reputation. And this Pharisee goes, why is she here? One, she's a woman, so she's not highly respected. Two, she's a product, so she shouldn't even be in here unless we've paid for her. And three, she is a sinful woman and she's interacting with us. Now, rabbis in that culture, which Jesus was one, he was a teacher, rabbis in that culture were seen as holy people and holy people don't associate with unholy people, which is so ironic, right? Because the holy people, the rabbis, were to teach the people about God so that they could trust in God and be made holy. So how do you interact with somebody who is unholy and you're holy and you shouldn't be around them? However, you're supposed to tell them about the holy God. Like, this seems so ironic. It seems so weird. It seems so strange. And yet we do this even now today, right? And so Jesus is a rabbi and... If you were a rabbi and you interacted with an unholy person, then you would be unholy and you have to be made religiously clean. And there's a whole process for that. In fact, if you get a chance today, you can read the document of Leviticus because it talks about how a holy person who has been made unholy gets holy again. There's a whole religious process for them to go through. And it's not just like, hey, wash your hands and you're done. It is days and weeks and even months on end. You would not receive resource because you were not holy, you had to get holy again, then you would get your paycheck again. This is how serious they took it. And this Pharisee is thinking to himself, so if Jesus is a holy man, if Jesus is a rabbi, he would know who this woman is and what this woman has done. And, and he would know she's unholy and she's touching him. And so he's Being made unholy. So he must not be who he says that he is because this woman is interacting with him and he's allowing it. This is the thoughts of this Pharisee. And then I love this. In verse 40, Jesus answered him. Remember, this guy's just thinking this. And Jesus answers his thoughts out loud. He says, Simon, I have something to tell you. And maybe he doesn't know that Jesus is answering his thoughts out loud. So he's intrigued. He's like, So tell me, teacher. And then Jesus shares a parable. A quick parable. It's a made-up story with true principles to help them understand the kingdom of God and the way of God. It's like what we do with music or what we do with movies or what we do with TV shows. It's a reflection, even if it's fictional. It's a reflection of the human condition. It's a reflection of who we are. In this instance, what Jesus is doing is giving them a reflection of the kingdom of God and the king who is God. And he says two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, denarii is a day's day's wage. So what Jesus is saying here is there's one guy who owes 500 days of resource to the moneylender. And there's another guy who owes 50 days wage. Neither of them had the money to pay it back. So the moneylender forgave the debts of both. Now, Simon, which of them will love him more? So Simon is a smart man, and he says, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus goes, you've judged correctly. And then he turns to the woman who is still wiping his feet, washing his feet, crying and drying his feet. And he says to Simon, do you see this woman? Isn't that funny? Of course he sees her. Of course, everybody in the room sees her. But I don't think that Jesus is talking about like, have, you, have your eyes been been turned in this direction to see this woman physically? I don't think Jesus is asking that question at all. I think Jesus is going, you haven't even seen her, and yet she's here right in front of you. Because isn't it true that you can be seen but not seen? People can see you but not actually see you. And I'm talking about value and dignifying you. Jesus knows exactly what this guy is thinking. He goes, do do you see this woman? And then he says, I came into your house. And you didn't give me any water for my feet, which was a tradition in that time to have your feet washed before you came in. And yet this woman wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. And you didn't give me a kiss, which again was a tradition in that time when you would greet each other with a holy kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet, not even my cheek, my feet. And you didn't put oil on my head. Again, it was a tradition in that time before you would have a meal together. You'd be anointed to be in that place, especially with holy people. And yet she poured perfume on my feet. And he says, in light of all of that, I tell you, therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And then he turns to the woman and he says, your sins are forgiven. Did you catch that? Sinful woman. Embarrassed and ashamed, holy rabbi, Messiah, God, Jesus, extending mercy. She came looking for mercy, and what did she receive? She received mercy because that's who Jesus is. And I don't want you to miss the most powerful point. He says, I tell you that her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Listen, Jesus isn't talking about the size of the sins in our lives. Like some sins are little sins and some sins are big sins, right? Now here's the truth. Each sin has a different consequence, right? There are some sins that can be little sins because of the consequences to it. Some sins can be greater because of the consequences. Jesus isn't saying that there are some sins that are little and some sins that are big. What Jesus is saying here is that she understands. And you apparently, Pharisee Simon, you don't. She understands and is aware of the mercy of God and how His mercy can set people free. And that's why she's here. She had a story of sinfulness and she already knew it. She was aware of it. She didn't need somebody to go, I can't believe that you do this. No, she's feeling that. That's why she's there. And she needed a new story. And she knew that a new story would be available to her because of Jesus. And that's why she decided to weep and wash his feet and pour out all of this perfume because she was expressing gratitude. This was an act of confession and repentance. And this woman understood that only Jesus can bring that to her. Mercy. Mercy. It's care over condemnation. Now, here's what's so interesting about this story. Knowing who this woman actually is. Because it can feel like it's just like a side story. We're focused on Jesus. But I want to turn your attention to the woman. And I want to talk about who she is and what happened to her. Because that, that's important, right? Because Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. She received mercy. So what happened to her? First of all, who—who who is she? Well, many scholars believe that this woman is Mary of Bethany. Now, often it gets connected to Mary Magdalene, but nowhere in the scriptures and nowhere in history does it say that Mary of Magdalene was actually someone who sold her body and, and and gave it over sexually to anybody for resource. Nowhere does the scripture say that and nowhere in history does it say that. But Mary of Bethany actually is accredited as somebody who sells herself, and we call it prostitution, right? She sells herself to be able to pay for her bills and put Food on the table. So many scholars believe this is Mary of Bethany, and Bethany is where she's from. In that time, you didn't really have a last name. Your last name was from the city you were from. That's why Jesus is known as Jesus of Nazareth. So this is Mary of Bethany. And I'm curious if you know about the impact that this moment had in her life. And if you don't, can I show it to you? It's found in a throwaway line in Matthew's letter at the end of the letter. And we can just skip over it, but I don't want to today. Matthew chapter 28, verse 1, it says this. After Jesus has died on the cross, and now that he is put in the tomb, Mary, it says, on the Sabbath, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary go to the tomb. This other Mary is Mary of Bethany. And she is there with Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And they're going to the tomb because in that tradition, you would wrap the dead body in spices so that it wouldn't decay. And it was a way of honoring the body. Little did they know that they were about to see an empty tomb and hear about a resurrected Jesus. But here's what I don't want you to miss. The fact that she's there is remarkable because this moment that Luke records could have been weeks, months, or even a couple of years before the resurrection of Jesus. Mary's life was changed by Jesus in that moment to the point that she gave her life to Jesus, so much so that she was going to go to the tomb of Jesus and show his dead body mercy because she'd received mercy and then she realized he was resurrected from the grave. Can you imagine the conversations that she would have with people around her? Can you imagine what people would ask her about from her past and how she would talk about her present and the hope that she had for the future? Imagine the story that this woman would tell now. Because she has given her life to Jesus because Jesus, in a moment of desperation, he met her with mercy. He didn't smack her hand or tell her, I told you so. He lended a hand. He worked towards reconciliation. This is why Jesus says, in the kingdom of God, followers of Jesus behave this way. They are happy, fortunate, joyful, blessed when they are merciful because they will receive mercy. Now, I don't want you to miss what Jesus really wants us to see in what he's saying. here, And in this story... That mercy received leads to mercy given. How God has treated us is how we treat those around us. When we take a stand, according to Jesus, followers of Jesus always stand on the side of mercy. Now, some of you, will want to push back and say, I get that, Mike, but when do the consequences and the discipline happen? Because something terrible has happened and there has to be consequences and discipline. Isn't it interesting that we talk about consequences and discipline when it has to do with other people? But when we talk about our mistakes and our mess-ups and our sin, we want mercy? Somebody speeds by you. I hope a cop sees them and pulls them over, right? But you speed and the cop gets behind you and you're like, I'm sorry, I just wasn't paying attention. Please show me mercy. Isn't it interesting that we talk about consequences and discipline for other people, but not for us? But since, since that's something that stirs in us, let's, let's talk about it for a moment. The answer actually in what we do with consequences and discipline and mercy is actually found In the words of James, the brother of Jesus. See, James didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ. He thought he was crazy. He thought he was a lunatic. He was embarrassed to be a part of the family. And you know when everything changed for James? When Jesus rose from the grave and he saw it. That changed everything for him. He moved from calling Jesus a lunatic, calling Jesus his brother, to actually calling Jesus Lord. And James was angry with his brother up until that point. And Jesus, when he rose from the grave, he could have condemned him and judged him. And James would have deserved that. But instead, he received mercy. And in light of that, here's what James writes in his letter about his brother, who he calls his Lord. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Sure, there's consequences. Yes, there's a need for discipline. And according to Jesus, it's all covered in mercy. Instead of saying, look what you've done, you better fix it. The followers of Jesus go, how can I join you in fixing what is broken? How can I be a part of healing what you have hurt? How can I, instead of smacking your hand, how can I lend a hand? that's mercy because that's what Jesus has done for you and Jesus has done for me. When you take a stand, you stand on the side of mercy because friends, mercy remembers what you have been given by God. Mercy reminds you of how good God has been to you. Mercy treats others the way that God has treated you because mercy triumphs. Over judgment. So, Gavin and I were driving home, and I'm riding the tension of letting him have it or helping him learn. And I see this emotionally broken stud of a son next to me, right? And he is my buddy, and I'm his dad, but we're also, we have this great friendship. And so, in that moment, I rode the tension of what was I going to do? And so, I said this in light of what I've learned from Jesus I said, Bud, Can I say one thing to you? And he goes, yes. And I said, I'm only going to say this once and I'm never going to say it again. But this is why we talked about being responsible and honorable. Because now your team is without your hype and your ability for the rest of the season. And this is why you have to be honorable and responsible with what you've been given. He nodded. He said, yeah, we both had tears strolling down our face and we've never spoken about this ever again. The only time that we did was when I asked him for permission to share this story with you. Because what I learned in that moment, what Jesus is teaching me and teaching you is that when it's time to take a stand, we stand on the side of mercy with our spouse, with our significant other, with our kids, with our friends, with our employees, with our employer, with ourselves. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. One of the greatest expressions of mercy is the reality that Jesus went to the cross while we were still in our sin but he is not a dead God. He is a God who is alive because he resurrected from the grave three days later. And you have an opportunity to celebrate that in a very tangible way through baptism. And our next Baptism Sunday is the greatest day on the calendar, Easter Sunday, April 17th, at all of our services. And I want to invite you to consider getting baptized that day. You can sign up, sending us a direct message or commenting below, or... When you stop by our Yukaipa location, stop by Guest Central and our team would love to sign you up for that. Because mercy is something that we receive from God. And it's something that we give to those around us because God has given it to us. Blessed are those who are merciful for they will be shown mercy. Let me pray some words over you. Heavenly Father, the way that we get to live our lives is... Remarkable, because you have been so merciful to us by sending the one that you love, by sending Jesus to stand in our place, to forgive us of our sin, and to offer us freedom through the resurrection. And may we, when it's time to take a stand, may it be a stance that's filled with truth and a stance that's filled with godliness and a stance that's honorable to you and a stance that's honorable to those around us because we're going to stand on the side of mercy. May we not smack a hand but lend a hand. May we not say, I told you so, but instead of trying to be right, may we reconcile because happy and joyful and fortunate are those who have received mercy from God and then actually give that mercy away. May we be those men and women in the name of Jesus. And together we say amen and amen and amen. We hope you enjoy the Active Church podcast. If you want to know more about Active Church, you can follow us on our social media platforms at Active Churches. Don't forget to subscribe as well to stay connected to future podcasts. And if you are local, we would love for you to experience the room with us. Sunday services are 9 a.m. and 10.45 a.m. in Yukaipa. See you next time.